I'm right and you're wrong. Once you start labeling people, categorizing of humans and ideas, you have desensitized yourself to the humanity of that other human being, to who they really are. And in the marketplace of ideas, these things are complicated, man. We all need to engage with a variety of viewpoints. A genuine multicultural connection with another. I mean, sometimes you don't need to agree or disagree. You just need to sit with it and digest. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Ideas Digest, the podcast practice where we explore the ideas that divide us in order to find the humanity that connects us. My name's Conrad, and I'm going to be honest. I try and be honest at every episode. This podcast is not for everyone. Each week, we'll explore some ideas that some weeks you'll probably be nodding along in agreement, being like, yeah, I can, I can, really, I can really understand this and get around it. But then other weeks... These ideas might repulse you, you might disagree completely, not want to listen, but that is the purpose. The purpose of this podcast is not to debate, debunk, or refute someone's argument, but it's to question and understand the worldview and experience that the person holds that leads them to these ideas, and people come to different ideas, different conclusions all the time. I'm here to try and understand how we get from A to B, really. So, this isn't always a comfortable thing to do if you're listening to the episode that you disagree with it's not comfortable but if you like if you're like the growing number of friends of the show it's slowly growing if you stick with it i i I think you'll learn to love it so three things if you want to turn this podcast into a practice number one listen to the episode that repulses or triggers you the most if you if if you're looking at an episode be like i don't really want to listen to it that's probably the one you should listen to number two Ask a question. We're on Instagram. You can follow us on Instagram at Isis Digest. When I post different things, ask a question. What question did I miss? It's easy to quickly debunk and go, oh, here's what they missed. Here's where they're wrong. But can you ask a question to see if you understand it completely? And number three, we love hearing from you. Send us a DM or an email, uh, isdigest.gmail.com or on Instagram, send us a DM. We love hearing from you. So with all that out of the way, this week's episode, we start with the clickbait. Now, just for new guests joining us and new listeners, uh, welcome. And uh, we start each show with the clickbait because clickbait's not going anywhere. It's 2020. Clickbait's been around for quite some time. It's not going anywhere. It misleads. It's often a quick, snappy judgment that's often not correct. So we start here and rather than, you know, someone's uncle on Facebook looking at a clickbait and then sharing it, we're going to start with the clickbait. And then go deeper and understand where it might be misleading and where it might be wrong because there's more than meets the eye to the clickbait. So we're just going to start with the clickbait. Here we go. I've come up with it. We'll see if it fits. It might not even fit. The seduction of new age Christianity. Now, with that, let me introduce my new friend of the show, Marcia Montenegro. Welcome to the show. Hello. It's so good to be on with you, Conrad. It's, it's great to have you here. I was browsing your website and blog and I kind of like looked at a few different articles you'd written and I kind of pieced together this clickbait, the seduction of new age Christianity. And we'll get into that in a moment about whether that's accurate, inaccurate, what it might be pulling from and what the ideas you want to bring to us today are. Um, but normally, Marcia, I, I try and make some judgments and assumptions about the guests that come on. Because when we meet somebody new, we always judge them. Let's face it. Let's be honest. We all judge each other. But I want to put those judgments to you so that you can say, oh, yes or no, that's probably accurate. That's inaccurate. Um, How does that sound? That sounds fine. 
I'm I'm all I'm all ears all, all for already. it. <laughs> Okay. Okay. I, I, to be honest, I didn't come up with, with many, so I'd like to get your thoughts on what judgments you've probably faced over your life. Uh, but here's, here's some I've got, you know, looking at your website, uh, would you fit the box conservative Christian? Uh, yes, as the way most understand it, uh, probably, but not in maybe all areas, but generally speaking, Generally speaking, yes, yeah. with some nuanced detail. That's that's exactly yeah. right. Boxes are too small; we can't always fit. So the right. judgment that uh, um, the the judgment are like we won't confess to you. Then, if when people say, "Oh, conservative Christian," they would come up with a few things would trigger, especially now in this current political p- climate. They would go, "Marcia, you must be pro-Trump." Yes, and that was the exception I was going to make. I do not apply that politically. Um, uh-huh. in all areas politically. So I, um, that's why I hesitate to say, well, yes, I fit that box because people make it broader, in my opinion, than it should be. When mm. I say conservative Christian, I'm thinking of the doctrines of Christianity and not, not, politi- not political ideas. Yeah, that is the the common uh, jump that people can make yes. from the yes. from the religious to the political. So yes. then they might think, okay, conservative Christian, then Marcia, you must be judgmental, like I'm being right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I would put it this way. No, I wouldn't call myself judgmental because I um, also do not try to judge. I use God's judgment as he reveals it in his word, what he has already judged is very clear. And so I go by that. I'm not making judgments based on my own standards. Um, Okay. Judgmental sounds is very negative to me. It sounds like somebody that's judging you based on what they think of you based on their ideas Uh of what you should be. Okay, that's a, that's an interesting distinction. Yeah, judgmental. So you would say no to that one. Okay, I, I think Other, I would. Yeah, considering what it yeah. implies. Yes, that's yeah. I think that's what's happening often with the game. It's like here's the assumption, and then we might have different definitions of the words being used, and that's okay. Yeah. Clarifying definition, I think, works. Um, another one. It's probably pretty similar. People might say, "Well, if conservative Christian, narrow-minded. How does that fit?" Ah, there's another word. (laughs) Um, I'm not narrow-minded in that I try to limit information or limit things I can, you know, I can possibly go to options. Um, I am, I see that the road to truth and to salvation is a narrow road as defined by Jesus himself. So mm. it depends on what is meant by narrow-minded. If it's a narrow yeah. road to, you know, to being with God and to salvation, then I would be, have to be narrow-minded. But I, again, narrow-minded to me reminds me of the word judgmental. And it's like you're yeah. restricting the way that you're seeing a person so that you aren't taking everything into account. So in, in the common definition, sounds like you're a no, but in the definition of your religious perspective going following Jesus is narrow, you would say yes, in a, dif- yes. In a rephrased a lot of, definition. Yes, of a lot of people would say I was narrow-minded because of what I believe about what Jesus said. Yes, that is probably true. And another one I've got here, people might 
be hearing what you're saying, uh, conservative Christian, talking about Jesus already. You must have been a Christian your whole life, like grown up a Christian, always been a Christian. Definitely not. <laughs> Definitely, Definitely not. not. No, that, I think that's a big surprise to people. A lot of people assume I was I grew up as a Christian. What are some other assumptions that you've faced, Marcia, that people might have that may be accurate or inaccurate? Okay, yes, you have you have covered a few there. Um, oh gosh, I don't know. Let me see. I guess people assume that I am. Oh, I know one. People assume I'm afraid of some things that I critique or evaluate on my website or on Facebook. And they will often respond by saying, what are you afraid of? You know, when I've, Uh for example, if I have declared something uh, maybe spiritually dangerous, or I've said this idea is damaging or whatever it may be, or this teaching is false, um, often the response will be, what are you afraid of? And I always have to explain I'm not afraid. That's not that's not what's causing me to say these things. Um, so there is a big assumption. That's something I run into quite often. Uh, so that's what, one what of them. What would you reframe it as when you say, I'm not afraid? Your response would be? Right. What I say is, I, I am not afraid. What I'm doing is exposing something that I think should be exposed, either because it's false, it's spiritually damaging, or it's deceptive. And therefore, I'm exposing it. And often what I'm exposing is something I used to believe. And so I point out that, you know, I definitely am not afraid of it because I used to believe it myself. So it would be kind of silly that I would be afraid of it. Um, So that's another thing I point out with that. Mm -hmm. That's probably a a good place to start with. I'd love to hear about your journey to your current beliefs now. Now it's probably probably a bit. Uh, it's probably a long journey or or a short journey. I'm not sure, <laughs> but I guess in it, like, talk to me about what you you're mentioning things you used to believe. Talk to me about I guess what you used to believe, and then your journey into this new beliefs you beliefs you have. Okay, sure. Um, I was involved for many years, for a good 20 years, or even a bit more, in various beliefs that come under the umbrella of New Age. Um, And this included some Eastern religious uh, beliefs and practices that started with um, Hinduism, and then Tibetan Buddhism, and then Zen Buddhism, which I stayed in longer than the other two. And at the same time, a very, very strong interest, which started in high school, in the paranormal. And um, those were kind of like parallel paths. So there was the paranormal or supernatural path. And then there was this Eastern religion path. And I was more or less following both of them uh, pretty pretty equally. Uh, So I became involved in various uh, practices. I took classes um, on meditation. I took classes on psychic development. I, um, I took classes on uh, astrology. I became a professional astrologer. That was my strongest interest. 
I also was involved in like other little bits here and there of things I picked up or I would take a class on like numerology, um, you know, palm reading, past life regression. Um, I had started believing in reincarnation actually very early on. Um, And when I say early on, I mean, when I look at my journey, this whole spiritual journey that I'm talking about, the belief in reincarnation really actually was almost preceded that. I've had that belief, but I wasn't consciously on any kind of spiritual journey at that point. I was just interested and, um, and I, I sort of, I was reading about it and started believing it. And then after that, I began these other steps where I got involved in studying um, the Eastern ideas and the supernatural. So, you know, this was really um, over a period of time. What Paul, What started your interest in the, what you're calling the New Age and Eastern traditions and the paranormal? Uh, like, what age were you, and and what were your parents' backgrounds? Okay, that may have like led you into it. Why did you end up going that direction? Okay. Um, well, actually, my father was an agnostic and did not accept anything supernatural. So my interest definitely okay. did not come from him. Okay. Um, uh, in fact, he sort of had a, uh, you know, a, a, an abhorrence for that. Um, my mother had been raised, um, as a Baptist in a Christian home. Um, however, she was not really living her life, uh, in any kind of obvious Christian manner. I don't mean she was, you know, like living a wild life or anything, but she wasn't, um, you know, I never saw her pray or read the Bible. Um, the only thing she did really was that she made my sister and me go to church. So she felt church was very important. However, we lived in different countries. My father was a foreign service officer. So we were in these other countries where the um, churches were sort of generic. And, um, you know, I don't believe I got very much specific teaching in any of those places. Um, When we came back to the United States, I did um, start going to a Baptist church and I went to everything there. I went to Sunday school and, you know, to the service and I, I, I was very dutiful. I did everything I was supposed to do, but I didn't really have a concept of, of the beliefs Uh, for whatever reason. um, They didn't really mean anything to me. And I began questioning them Uh, when I was about, I'd say 13 and 14, I was really questioning them. And then um, in high school, when I went to high school, I was 15, uh, my friends were not Christians. And, but they were all very dedicated to their belief and they were all different. You know, one was a Mormon, um, one was a free thinker, uh, one was a Quaker and a very strong pacifist. And another one was Baha'i. And each of them really was dedicated to their particular belief. And I thought, you know, if they are so dedicated to their belief, there might be something I could get dedicated to because I don't feel that Christianity is really for me. So at that point, I began thinking that I could explore other spiritual paths but I was very limited in high school. I didn't really have the resources or the time for that. So it was something that I started more later when I went to college. 
And um, even there, I couldn't do that much of it because I was busy doing my work <laughs> and um, studying and, you know, taking tests. But I did have, I did meet up with some people there who were into some of these ideas like, um, you know, seeing auras or using tarot cards and things like that. And that intrigued me. Plus, it was uh, it was in college, which introduced me to the Eastern religions uh, because I did a special project on Gandhi. And that got me very interested in Hinduism. And that lingered with me for a while. I didn't really get into Buddhism in college, but the Hindu stuff. What initially drew you to Hinduism when you heard the teachings? I I don't know. I think it was reading about Gandhi. I was very... um, I was very idealistic and, you know, he seemed like this very brave figure who was defying, you know, the British rule over India, but he didn't do it with anything um, militant, you know, militantly or with force. He had this, you know, way of this very non-aggressive kind of pacifist way of challenging them. Um, And of course that wasn't really necessarily Hindu. That was, he got that actually from, um, Uh, the pacifism he claimed to have gotten from a book he read by Tolstoy, I think, which was Tolstoy's idea of Christianity. And I think it was called The Kingdom is Within You. And it apparently influenced Gandhi very deeply. But I, I, that still kind of, I saw it as a Hindu thing. And uh, later that interest in Hinduism, a few years after college, caused me to start reading, um, you know, books, more about the real Hindu ideas that went beyond Gandhi's life. And I, I don't know why it intrigued me. I think maybe one reason is because it was so different from anything I had been exposed to or anything that I knew firsthand. And um, I was interested in spiritual things. I mean, that was pretty true. And in high school, I was interested in astrology and I was interested in, you know, psychic powers and so I had this interest in the, in the invisible, in the unseen realm, and in the spiritual realm that was there. Did you experience any of the quote-unquote spiritual, like when you're, you were saying you were doing like tarot card reading and, and things like that? Like what, what's that experience, what was that experience like for you when you occupied this world and were, I guess, a part of these practices and worldview? Okay. Um, are you talking about later when I got more deeply involved? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, cause I did have a few experiences before, like in college, <laughs> but, um, yeah, when I was more deeply involved, um, I had quite a lot of experiences. Um, I had, uh, out of body experiences, uh, which were kind of, and actually this is before I got deeply involved. Uh, but I was kind of on the road to it. And uh, that I didn't understand what that was. Um, and How would you describe scary. that for somebody listening, going out of body? What does that What does that kind of look like or feel? Like? Um, it was a feeling of of being weightless, and then drifting away from your body, and then finding yourself somewhere. Um, I never knew, you know. Well, in some cases, I was in the same room where I was, where I was sleeping or where my body was on the bed. But in other cases, I was like somewhere like in, I don't know where I was. I was just in some, like, it's almost like being in outer space, but it didn't look like outer space. Um, Sometimes it was not very clear 
what I could see. It was sometimes buildings I didn't write. These were not dreams either because I've always had very, I've been, a, you know, I've had dreams all my life. I used to have nightmares as a child. And I'm very clear on when I have a dream. <laughs> you know, it's very clear to me when I wake up, that was a dream. And these were not dreams. These were very real. Often they would happen when I was awake. So, or, you know, I was about to fall asleep or I was wide awake. And so um, they were not dreams. Uh, they, so some, they were often mostly confusing experiences. And um, so I didn't really see the purpose of them. And actually, I didn't like them all that much. Um, but I didn't seem to have any control over it. And, um, and this is, you're talking without the use of illicit substances, I'm gathering. Yes, exactly. Yes, yeah. uh, without yeah. any kind of drugs, right. Um, and actually, I was never into drugs. You know, I smoked, um, I smoked pot. And one time I had a mushroom tea. <laughs> which was not a good experience. <laughs> it was not a good experience, um, mainly because it affected me physically in a very strange way. Um, and other than that, that those were the, the drugs that I had. Um, so I never tried any of the hallucinogens like LSD or any mescaline or mm. anything like that. I didn't want to, I, I was actually afraid of those things. I didn't want to do them. So, um, you know, that was one experience. Um, I had another experience, other experiences of, well, actually my senior year in college of a, a figure appearing before me and telling, he was telling me when he died. So I thought I was seeing the spirit of a dead man. And at that time, I was very interested in communication with the dead because uh, one of my friends at school was doing a special project on spiritualism. And so she was required to go to all of these spiritualist churches and spiritualism is where people believe that you can contact the dead and they believe the dead gain wisdom after they die. And so they seek advice from them. Um, and so at these churches, the ministers come out and convey messages to people from their supposed dead relatives. And so we, I had to go, I, me and some other friends of hers went with us with this friend a mutual friend to these different services and that all of that intrigued me in that area. I had never, mm. you know, been exposed to that before and I found it very, very interesting. So I think that's why that uh, supposed dead man appeared to me. I mean, I don't, I don't believe in any way, shape or form. It was a dead man, um, but it but was very real and I was awake. When it happened. Huh? I did at the time. Yes. I was awake. I was awake when it happened. So at that time, you would have you would have said like you were some level of medium, like being able to commune with with dead people. That's how you would have seen it. Yeah, I don't know if I would call myself a medium because a medium actively contacts the dead, like they initiate okay. it, and they often will have a claim they have a guide, a spirit guide in the in the what they call the spirit realm or the you know the other side, who will. Uh, bring either the dead person to them or give the information from the dead person. So they're a little more uh, seemingly in control of it. Whereas for me, it was just kind of happening out of the blue. And um, mm. I, so I, w I wouldn't have called myself a medium. I, I, I probably wouldn't have labeled myself anything. I, it was just, I just happened yeah. to have that happen to me. <laughs> and I didn't, okay. I didn't really try to label it though. So I, I suppose how long were you, 
an astrologist for and have this this I guess one question I would have is like describe your worldview for me that you that you okay. used to have like and okay. and to I guess be more specific like as you contrast it to a current Christian worldview of there being a God and a spiritual realm and a devil and those sorts of things how would you talk about how how did the world look to you when you were communing with the dead, when you were um, learning about the Eastern religions and meditation practices and. Okay. Yes. That's a very good question. Um, And of course this worldview developed over time. So initially, you know, I think it was in a very, uh, you know, kind of shallow infant form, but it developed over time um, as I began to do more reading or going to classes and hearing things from other people. And so my worldview basically was the idea that I believed in reincarnation. So I believed that we were all here for a purpose and that we would come back again and we would have to keep coming back to learn our lessons. So that was part of it. I believed God was more of an energy or a force and that we all came from God and we would all go back to God. Um, I saw Jesus as a wise, enlightened teacher along the same lines of, as Buddha and some other, you know, religious figures. And I felt that, you know, Jesus was kind of the figure for Christianity. And then, you know, other figures were for different religions. Uh, and I believed that we were always spiritually progressing. So I believed that everybody on earth was at some point in their in their spiritual progress they were at some level whether it was like a lower level or you know kind of a middle level or they were a more advanced level and they were people were at all different levels and you had to realize that you were on a spiritual journey in order to advance because until you realize that you're not you're kind of living in ignorance now this was this was how i saw things and so i felt people for example like christians were kind of ignorant because they, they seem to be adhering to this one path and um, this one book, the Bible, <laughs> and they were not open to anything else. And so they were they were not even aware they were on this spiritual path. And so they were they were probably going to have to live many lives until they became aware of that. So I had that view mm. of, of Christians. Um, and that's a very common view for people in the kind of belief system that I was in. That's, that's common. It's com- It was common then and it's common now. And I, um, I believed, I really was always looking for meanings, like hidden meanings in things. So, um, of course, as an astrologer, I believed there was meaning behind the position of the planets in your birth chart. Um, you know, cause I mean, I, I read books. Hmm? When you say meaning, do you mean like something out there communicating with you, telling you what to do or meaning as in how, how would you define meaning as you're using it there? Oh, um, just, um, it had some, it had a hidden meaning, not, not that anyone was telling it to me, but for example, I mean, all the planets in astrology, uh, represent something. So, you know, Mars is a planet of aggression and ego. Um, you know, it's a male energy. It um, has to do with uh, forcing things. Uh, you know, the moon is a female energy and is receptive. And um, 
nurturing. Um, you know, Jupiter is a planet of expansion and knowledge and seeking adventure, um, you know, not wanting to be limited. So that those kind of meanings, mm. which go along with the zodiac signs. That, that can be applied to. to you as a as a human. When you look at that, you go, oh, well, this is this is likely going to happen. Would you say you be- like right. believed those things in a way that was like at metaphorical or very literal? Like, like Mars is literally like sending beams of energy that we receive here. Or was it, or was it like a metaphor being like, Oh, well, Mars can represent this. And like, was yes, it, yeah. Metaphorical or literal in how you're talking. It was definitely more metaphorical. It was symbolic. I did not okay. feel the planets were actually like zapping people. And, okay. <laughs> you know, yeah, with a particular yeah. kind of energy. I felt that the um, the idea in contemporary astrology is that the position of the planets at your birth is like a blueprint of your life. And so they they all are in that position at the time you're born for a reason. And it's because they're going to indicate who you are and what your life path is. And so that's how I saw it. So I would read it symbolically. Uh-huh. Was there a why behind how that works? Like a bit, this is more of like a scientist, scientific type question being like, if that is the worldview being like, I'm born on this day and all the planets are in this alignment. What would you say if I said, well, how does that work? Why is that the case? What would have been the answer? As an astrologer, um, I, I don't, I think I would have said something like astrology is very ancient And this is something that has been noticed by astrologers over the centuries and by observing uh, things that happen and observing things that happen in people's lives. uh, These these kinds of ideas have been verified. I I imagine that would have been my answer. And that's actually it's not a very good answer because (laughs) because (laughs) before the 1800s, before psychology came along, astrology was more about. Um, well, initially it was mainly just for rulers back in the ancient world. It was like for Kings and it was more like reading omens, you know, like, oh, Mars is near the sun. So, uh, the King has to be told that an enemy is going to try to attack or something like that. It was these kind of, you know, these big, big, uh, event kind of things. And it didn't have anything to do with a personality or the King's personal life. And it, uh, the Greeks actually made it more personal, but even then they weren't using psychology. So it was more fatalistic. Um, and mm-hmm. so astrology developed. And when psychology came along, it took on all these psychological overtones so that the astrologer, you know, now looks at it in this almost psychological way, like this is your makeup and you, you attract older men who are very distant and, you know, they're wealthy, but they're not, they're not very um, uh, loving or they don't express love very easily or whatever. And so um, there's a psychological element that was kind of added to it. And I, I, I kind of knew this, but I still felt that there were these meanings in the planets and everything that were inherent in the planet itself. It was, and that's not a scientific view. That's very much of a spiritual, that's a spiritual belief. So no actual explanation as to how it works, just more of a, 
a tradition, hey, it comes from this tradition and we think it's useful yes. and it seems to be proven. That seems to be, I guess that's a, I mean, I could, I could ask him many questions and delve into this world uh, for a long time. But I suppose what's, what's very interesting to me is what about this worldview that you've kind of outlined and how you saw the world? What about it unraveled that then led you out of it? Well, <clears throat> What's very interesting is how it unraveled. It did not begin with me. I was not looking to anything else. I wasn't trying to get out of what I believed in. I was I was actually very happy being an astrologer. I liked doing astrology. Um, I liked, you know, giving the client this information. I really felt I was helping the client. And my other beliefs, the Zen Buddhism, I I was very uh, used to that kind of, of practice, the meditation and the kind of Zen sort of things that I would read that I thought were very wise. And so I wasn't like dissatisfied. I do, I do admit that I did feel at times there was, there was not, I wasn't getting all the answers. You know, there was no clear answer, for example, on what happens when you die uh, where do you go? I mean, I believed in reincarnation, but what happens in between? You know, where do you go? And there were different answers on this. Different people had different teachings on what happens to you when you die. And then who decides when you come back and who decides how you're going to come back? You know, okay, so now I'm going to come back as, you know, this man named Jim, you know, who lives in New Zealand or something. <laughs> and Good guy. I know a guy named Jim from New Zealand. Yeah. <laughs> you know a guy named Jim in New Zealand? <laughs> and yeah, so, well, no, he's in Australia now, but yeah. <laughs> okay. And it's like, who's going to decide that? Do I decide that? Or is that decided for me? And if it's decided for me, who decides it? So, and what happens ultimately at the end when you no longer reincarnate, supposedly who you have reached the state of enlightenment and you kind of merge with, with the God energy, which means you would lose your individuality and I sort of wondered, well, what would that be like? Because it doesn't sound very inviting to me. And so the, I had these little, like these questions in my mind, but they weren't enough to make me want to leave. They were just kind of there. And so um, what happened was actually, and, and it was really kind of, it was really a supernatural thing. Um, although at the time, I, I don't know if I thought, it, thought of it that way. Um, I... Uh, I had this, uh, the best word I know for this is compulsion. I had a compulsion to go to um, a church. Now, you know, I haven't been going to Christian churches, so I wasn't interested, and I wasn't interested in going. So <laughs> I didn't understand why I had a compulsion. And uh, it wouldn't go away. I kept waiting for it to go away, and it wouldn't go away. And it actually started, I was president of the Astrological Society, and it actually started the last few months of my term as president. Um, it started like in April. And then it went on into May and June and into the summer. And in August, I went to an astrological conference in Eugene, Oregon. And I did a couple of presentations there. Um, and I thought when I came back, uh, at the time I was living in Atlanta, all this time when I was doing these spiritual searchings and um, learning uh, the Buddhist meditation and learning astrology and everything was Atlanta, Georgia. I don't think I mentioned that. So when I flew back to Atlanta from Oregon, 
I thought that this compulsion would be gone and it wasn't gone. So I decided that it was probably from a previous lifetime as a Christian. And that's how I justified going to a church. I thought, okay, there's something from a previous life I have to resolve. And so I went to a large church downtown Atlanta, where I was pretty sure nobody knew me. Probably nobody in any church would have known me, but I went to this church and I sat in the back um, on the end of the aisle, on the end of the pew, because I was planning to leave after about 15 or 20 minutes. I was just going to slip out the door. Um, But I thought I would stay there for 15 and 20 minutes and see if something happened, if I had some kind of realization about this compulsion. Well, the service began and everyone stood up and they were playing music and they had a procession from the back of the church down the aisle of the uh, choir uh, members and the ministers. And they were all led by a young boy carrying a cross. And as he walked by me at that exact moment, this incredible, um, and I know this sounds very strange, but I have no other way to put it, this waterfall of love came falling on me and through me. And it was like, I knew it was from God. And it was like God was saying, I didn't hear a voice, but it was like God was saying, I love you. And it was very powerful. I knew it had nothing to do with the music or with the church or with the people in the church. It just, it was not like that at all. And I actually started crying a little bit and I couldn't understand what this was. I didn't understand what was happening or why it was happening at all. I was completely, you know, I was kind of in shock, frankly. Um, I didn't even believe in a personal God. So it, it sounds like the worldview you had couldn't answer a lot of the questions that you noticed were there, but weren't at the forefront of your mind. And there's this impersonal nature about the universe and what happens. And uh, if God is like a force, then it's not a personal force. It's just kind of a force out there. And you're describing like an experience of being in church encountering what you what you would call like a personal god force being like how would you i guess how would you unpack that idea of like god going from being a very impersonal force to being a personal feeling when you're saying like love as if as if god loved you and not just is love in general what right pull that difference apart for me Okay, yes. Well, at the time, I I couldn't unpack it because I actually was holding two contradictory views of God at the same time. I had this belief in the impersonal God, and then I, but yet I knew a personal God was doing this, um, revealing this love, which is how I how I felt was what I thought it was, and I knew I knew those didn't go together, but I couldn't resolve it. And I couldn't explain it. I basically was very perplexed. Um, And so I think my initial reaction to this was a resistance because when I went home, I wrote, I had a journal that I would write in sometime. And I wrote it, I wrote in my journal more or less what happened. And then I said, 
but no matter what, I'm not going to give up the spiritual path that I'm on. So my initial reaction was, okay, this is something different than what I believe, but I am not ready to give up anything I believe for it. That was, that was more or less what I was saying to myself. And I didn't, I couldn't resolve that contradiction then. And actually for a quiet, for a while, because the, um, the next thing that happened was I, I went back, I kept going to the church um, because I don't even know why I kept going. I didn't expect something like that again. I, I It wasn't that I went back because I thought I was going to have another, you know, kind of spiritual experience. I just felt drawn to go there. And um, the people there were very um, open-minded. Uh, so uh, <laughs> when they found out I was an astrologer or, you know, I was interested in Tibetan Buddhism or whatever, they, they didn't have an issue with it. So I, I felt very comfortable. Um, and I just kept going. I, I think I felt like I was exploring something new and I was, I think I was curious. So um, I, I guess as you, as we look at your, cause I kind of want to now bring in almost the contrast of your worldview now to the contrast of the worldview you used to have. Okay. How, how would you, one question would be what works for you about Christianity now, and maybe you can define like the form of Christianity, like your worldview now, what works better for you about this worldview as opposed to the worldview you came from? Okay. Um, yes. Um, well, uh, there's several things. One is, um, I feel that when the worldview I had, there were no absolutes. Everything was relative, um, and I and I liked it that way. But the contrast of of what I what I believe now is knowing the absolutes, and the absolutes make a lot more sense. Uh, it's it's much more logical. It's a much better it's much better and more rational way of explaining things. Um, these are some of the things I've noticed. Uh, I also have realized that. Uh, truth is not some kind of abstract thing that you're always going after some kind of vague thing, or it's not something that you just claim as your own because of your own personal experience, but truth is actually real and is actually embodied in uh, Jesus Christ. And he did say, I, I am the way, the truth and the life. And so truth is a person. It's not this abstract kind of thing. Um, that's another big difference. Um, and, an, oh, there's so many things. Uh, I feel a peace uh, that I did not have then. Uh, when, what I had then was a searching. My, my whole attitude was about searching for answers, searching for more truth, uh, fitting those pieces into my, into my life uh, that seemed to fit. And you know, going on this uh, kind of almost an endless journey, a journey that would go on through many, many lives, which had a lot of appeal for me. Um, but there's also this, you know, never, never really knowing and nobody really having the answers, which sometimes bothered me, sometimes didn't bother me. Uh, but it's this very open-ended kind of thing. And mm -hmm. What I'm in now, what I believe now, there are there are not answers to everything, certainly not, 
but there are some clear answers and they, it makes more sense. The world makes a lot more sense to me from the, with the Christian worldview than it did with the new age worldview. Uh, the new age worldview is very rarely illogical. So is there a, I suppose, some level of fatigue that you might have experienced existing in a world with no answers, always in uncertainty? Like you, you kind of said, truth is something that you used to pursue and would always unfold and kind of keep going. Mm-hmm. And now mm-hmm. you're saying you have a, a peace now of going, that journey's, I guess, over. Jesus mm-hmm. answers all of these questions. I, I can mm-hmm. kind of almost rest my mind a little bit more I don't have to always be like progressing and moving towards this endless Mm -hmm. chase how does how does that sound yeah that's that's actually a good way to put it I would say that is the contrast but I would also add that I'm not believing in Jesus just because it gives me a rest it because I didn't know I would get a rest when I believed in Jesus I've I've discovered the rest after coming to belief in Jesus. I didn't really know what I would get when I believed in Jesus. I had no idea. (laughs) So I wasn't believing in him in order to get some kind of result or to get answers or rest or anything. Um, That all came later. Um, And when you say believing in Jesus, it seems mm-hmm. it's sometimes like a frustrating question for many Christians to answer, but how would you answer the question of when you say believe in Jesus, what do you mean? Like believe in, what, what does that mean? I, I mean, trust in who he says he is, um, who he says he is the son of God who died to pay the penalty for sins on the cross. Something I had never understood um, and when I when I did trust in Christ, I, I want to mention I'm not going to give my age <laughs> because <laughs> I don't know. Um, I, w- I was older. I was not young. Um, right. I had a nine year old son. I had been involved in the new age at least 20 years. I'd been, you know, professional astrologer for 10 years. I was not like like a kind of starry eyed, you know, 25 year old or something. I, I was I was a mature adult um, and uh, I forgot why I was saying that, but <laughs> I, had, I had a reason in there. I, and so yeah. um, trust, I, I just talking about trusting in Jesus. So believing in Jesus, yeah. I saw who he was for the first time. And that happened while I was reading the book of Matthew, the the visit yeah. to church that I described led to two, through two more steps where I felt God was was telling me astrology was wrong and then to give it up, okay, mm-hmm. which I resisted both of those very strongly. Mm-hmm. And then I felt like I, I had to do it. And I didn't know why. And I actually gave astrology up before I became a Christian. But I started reading the Bible and I was starting with Matthew chapter one and I read a little bit every night. And when I got to chapter eight, while I was reading it a few days before Christmas, uh, that's when I, I I call it an encounter with Jesus. But by that, I'm not saying like Jesus appeared in the room or anything like that. I, I don't mean anything yeah. like that. It was I encountered him by because I saw who he was um, and I was yeah. reading about him in an account in there about Jesus on the boat with his disciples. And there's a huge storm. And Jesus is asleep and they wake him up and they say, you know, we're going to drown. 
And Jesus gets up and rebukes the sea and the wind. I mean, he has complete mastery over nature. And they're, they're kind of shocked. And he says, you know, where is your faith? Basically, he's saying, you still don't understand who I am. And there was something about that account that just grabbed me. And I kept reading it over and over. And as I was rereading it, it's like, it was like, then I saw who he was. And that is the first time in my life that I saw who Jesus was. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess what, what's an interesting um, all the way back because I think you have a very fascinating uh, journey that uh, we can spend even even more time on uh, oh yes I'm but sure. <laughs> in, in the interest of in the interest of uh, keeping this uh, this episode less than two hours I want to I want to come to the clickbait that I've produced from from looking at y- the blog posts that you write and the clickbait was the seduction of new age Christianity now I've kind of uh, put new age in there. Um, talk to me about, cause I, I think I heard a podcast of you on Elisa Childers podcast talking, mm. I guess about what, what's called progressive Christianity. I, and, and I think in your work, you're talking about the, this new age element that seems to be popping up in progressive Christianity. Talk to me about, I guess what progressive Christianity is and what you're talking about when you're saying new age, like coming into Christianity, so to speak. Okay. Um, yes. Uh, the elements of new age uh, coming into progressive Christianity are uh, started with the kind of the forerunners of progressive Christianity was a group of people called the emergence Um, at least in the United States, that's what they were called. These were people like Rob Bell, Brian McLaren, Tony Jones, Erwin McManus, and several other people. Um, And they were really pushing the boundaries of Christianity, trying to uh, initially reach unchurched people, but they, they really pushed the, you know, the doctrinal boundaries and they were, um, for whatever reason, influenced by people uh, that I would put on the New Age side, like um, Ken Wilber. He's not technically a New Ager, but he has views very compatible with it. He's not a Christian. Uh, Ken Wilber was a big influence on them. Uh, In fact, Rob Bell recommends um, in his book, Velvet Elvis, in a footnote, he tells his readers to set three months aside to read Ken Wilber's book which is really an astonishing thing to find in a Christian book, considering what Ken Wilber believes. It's nothing even near Christianity. Um, So when you're talking about what Ken Wilber believes, you're saying Ken Wilber sees the world in a, in a way similar to how you used to see the world, like more of a God as a, as a force, as a less of a personal deity. Yes. And I, and I think maybe he's even doesn't even believe in a God because from what I, I read the book that Rob Bell recommended, um, the best I can, I can tell from reading that and other things where I've seen Ken Wilber talk is that he's kind of leans very strongly in the Buddhist direction and uh-huh. Buddhism doesn't really have a, acknowledge a God. They don't deny a God, but they don't acknowledge a God. But I did initially, when I was first learning about him, see him as very, as kind of new age. Um, some of his views of, of, you know, no, no absolutes and non-dualism 
is one of his big views, uh, are very compatible with, or they are part of the New Age worldview. Uh, certainly as a New Ager, I would have been comfortable with a lot of his, his beliefs. Uh, mm-hmm. So that, I mean, that, so that's one element. And then there's just other elements where they seem to admire people like Matthew Fox. Um, Matthew Fox kind of has his own specific belief system, but I would, I would put him in a category of new age and he's actually a big influence on the new age, even though he's an Episcopal priest. Um, so Matthew Fox seemed to be somebody they admired uh, and would re- even recommend, you know, these people. Uh, they talk in terms, sometimes they would use these new age terms like Christ consciousness. And it seemed like as they, the mer- emergence grew, became the progressives, maybe around 2010, 2011 or so, they were much more open to other new age things such as the Enneagram, which comes straight out of the new age. Uh, and they were introducing that at their conferences. And that was partly due to Richard Rohr because Richard Rohr uh, wrote a book on the Enneagram. And Richard Rohr had been a favorite of the emergence and has been an influence on progressive Christianity since the beginning. Um, his influence is, it is absolutely incredible. And even, I would not call Richard Rohr a New Ager, but this is what I say about him. Many of his views are very compatible with New Age. And if you didn't really know what he believed and you heard some of the things he said or read some of them, you might think he's a new ager. Now, like I say, Uh, I don't call him that. He doesn't exactly fit that category. But a lot of his views are very um, compatible with the new age. And he's a, a tremendous influence on the progressives. So in that sense, there are these either some new age or new age like ideas that are in the progressive uh, camp. What problems do you, as you critique it, what problems do you see when you say, well, because I'm hearing you say, you know, people like Rob Bell um, are talking about ideas that are compatible with the new age. Now, by default, do you think that is problematic because it's compatible with the new age? Is, is, would that be your position? And if so, why? Oh, yes, definitely, <laughs> because the New Age is completely contrary to Christianity. It's that it, they don't mix. It's like oil and water. It absolutely will not mix. It can parts of it can appear to be to be Christian or be compatible with Christianity. But when you really understand the context, it doesn't mix at all. So and when you, when um, you say it. It doesn't mix. Like if we make it a, a concrete and go, what is it about, say, Rob Bell or, or Richard Raw and their teachings that okay. you're saying doesn't mix like oil and water? Like what what is not working in that? Okay. Well, Richard Raw, for example, is a panentheist. He believes that um, Christ and God, I never, I'm never clear on with, with him whether he, when he says Christ, he includes God or not, but he believes Christ is in creation because he actually teaches the first incarnation of Christ was creation. Um, Mm -hmm. And the second incarnation was as Jesus. Okay, this is absolutely nothing you would find in Christianity at all. But he says because Christ's first incarnation was creation, we are all literally in Christ because we're all part of creation. We are literally in Christ. 
we've never been separated from Christ or from God. So we don't need redemption. Okay, there, there's the crux of Christianity is that everybody needs redemption. And he's exactly the opposite. Nobody needs redemption. But what, what he thinks they need is, a, is an understanding. They need to have a new consciousness of the truth, a new paradigm. And that's what he's all about. He wants to teach his paradigm. And um, so that's there, there's some huge contrast right there. He also doesn't believe that Jesus died for sins because he doesn't think sin is a problem. So that's a completely different view of the atonement, you know, versus what Christianity and the Bible teach and what Jesus himself said. So there's another huge, huge different. I mean, the differences are so vast that, you know, it's like it's like, you know, it's just polar opposite. To get, I guess, specific about some of the things you're talking about there, it, it sounds as if you're saying because of some of these ideas he has, like the universal Christ, panentheism, which is God is within all, and so God is within us, within the trees, within every all of creation. Uh, and then you're saying that leads to, well, if Christ is everywhere, then we're not, we've never been separate from the Christ, and therefore mm-hmm. God's death on the cross doesn't fit, I suppose, the penal atonement, penal substitutionary right. atonement, atonement worldview that says Jesus died for our sins to reconcile us to God. Right. Um, what do you see as problematic? Like, what do you think? What do you think if if somebody listening goes, no, no, I really like how Richard Raw paints a new picture of Jesus on the cross, or I like how he shows that you know. All of creation is is God's creation. What do you see? How do you see that being problematic for for somebody apart from the fact that it doesn't line up with with certain views of Christianity? Well, I guess um, I would say to that person, um, or I guess to you, why, why isn't it problematic? Um, of course, because my view is that since we do need redemption, if you're going to believe what Richard War teaches, you're going to have a false sense of security that you are okay just believing you're already in Christ. Um, you have divine DNA, as Richard War always says, and we're never separated from God and everybody is going to be um you know, taken to a point of perfection through this universal Christ power. Uh, And so you have a sense, a false sense of security that you're okay the way you are. You don't have any sins that need to be forgiven. Um, And of course, in in the Christian worldview, and even according to what Jesus said, if you don't turn to the true Jesus Christ, you will have an eternal death, which is eternal separation from God. And I care for people. I don't want them to go on that path. So also Jesus told his followers to, to teach the gospel and, 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 you know, spread the, the news about him. And so I feel very compelled to do this. Um, I mean, this is the ministry, you know, God led me to. And I, I'm seeing so many people now fall for Richard Rohr's ideas. And I feel that they're getting a, they are feeling good and they are getting what they think is a sense of peace um, from what Rohr is teaching. And I can understand why, 
but it's going to lead them really to a very dark future. So I, uh, <laughs> I, I can't be silent in the face of that. I, I'm not, mm. it's not easy for me to be silent anyway, but especially <laughs> in the face of a, of a massive teaching and influence that is so contrary to the true Jesus Christ, uh, you know, whom I love, I, I must say something. So it, it sounds like you're saying salvation, you can only truly be saved and have eternity if you accept Jesus in the, in the manner of dying for your sins as your savior in that very, I suppose, like um, what people might call traditional Christian worldview. And if you confess your sins and admit that, you know, you want to choose God's way and not your way, then you'll have eternity. And what you're, what you're, what it sounds like you're saying is ideas that perhaps Rob Bell might talk about in books like Love Wins, where he talks about, is your finite necessarily determined? Is your infinite necessarily determined by your finite time here on earth? It's a question he poses that put him out of favor with a lot of uh, Hmm. traditional Christian churches. And when you hear Richard Raw kind of talk about the fact that sin might not be because he do, he does talk about sin being a collective a collective thing that we are all kind of a part of and less of an individual um, individual moral failing. You're saying that if if you accept the these premises, then it might lead you away from then it might lead you away from thinking we need salvation in that traditional sense. And then if we don't have that salvation, you're worried about people, I guess, not having eternity with Jesus. Does that sound yes. like a fair yes. summary? Yes, exactly. And of course, mm-hmm. uh, Rob Bell is, you know, uh, has known and been influenced by Richard Rohr for a number of years. Um, <clears throat> I believe that he's probably adopted his views. Um, and, and just to, this kind of goes back to when we were talking about the new age and the progressives. Um, Rob Bell has actually done a seminar with Deepak Chopra who's probably the quintessential new ager, <laughs> at least in the right. United States. And he's the richest new ager maybe in the world. But um, I mean, see, there's a, this willingness to, to do something with someone like Deepak Chopra. And I think Deepak Chopra actually has Rob Bell on his website. Um, at least he did in the past. And I think he's still there. Uh, it shows that Rob Bell is not, adhering to Christianity anymore. I don't even know if he calls Mm. himself a Christian. Um, But from what I've seen and noticed from him over the past several years, he is not, he is not confessing any kind of Christian faith. He's gone completely off. He's gone off the the map of of Christianity. Listening to Richard Raw, he would have, what would you make of the argument he says when he says, a lot of people might accuse him of that. Like you've kind of said, like Rob Bell, Richard Raw, they're not really Christian because they don't profess this central tenet of uh, almost penal substitutionary atonement model of Christianity, which is very prominent in the West and has been uh, for a couple hundred years. And I guess what they would say and what Richard Raw would say is people call him as if he's progressive, but he, he's, his typical response is, I'm very orthodox. This, I'm mm-hmm. drawing on the t- Christian tradition of thousands of years old, not just the recent 200 years of Protestantism. What, I guess, what do you say to that, that claim where it's like, if you're saying, you know, they've gone away from 
from Christianity, they might say, well, yeah, we've gone away from this version of Christianity, but in some sense, they might claim to be holding on to a truer, deeper tradition of Christianity of where it came from beyond 200 years. What do you, I guess, push against with with that idea? Well, um, Richard Rohr has nothing to back his claim up on. Um, he is not teaching the Orthodox faith. I know he says that. I've heard him say it many times. Yeah. He, he, he claims that, but it's that's not the Orthodox faith. All you have to do is look at the creeds, the history of the church since it began, and what the church has confessed, you know, has not been what Richard Rohr is teaching. When you're saying the church, what would you be pointing to historically in that? I guess I'm thinking of the early, uh, the earlier creeds um, and what has, even over the centuries, even with the Catholic Church, which is, of course, very different in many ways from what would be called the non-Catholic or the Protestant Church, there is still a, you know, the kernel of the basic Christian teachings there. And Richard Rohr's ideas are not part of that at all. Richard Rohr is the one with the ideas that depart from the faith. Um, and I know he says he's being orthodox and his, he's teaching the real biblical truths because he's teaching what he thinks are the biblical truths and what he reads into the text. I mean, I'll give you an example. And actually, this is really shows how he, he either doesn't understand the Bible, or he's um, purposely doing this just to to try to look like he's right. I, and I don't want to say which it is, but he says, for example, that Paul understands, you know, that Christ is in creation and we're all in Christ because he uses the phrase in Christ a number of times. Um, I forgot how many times Richard Rohr actually added them up. And I'm thinking maybe he said 78 times, but I'm not sure that Paul uses the phrase in Christ. Well, if you read, you know, the Bible and it's it's very easy. It's, it's not a mystery when when Paul's talking about being in Christ, he doesn't mean literally you're in Christ. He doesn't mean that you're in creation. So you're in Christ. In Christ means you have put your faith in Christ and you are part of the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. And you are joined with Christ in the sense that you have become part of uh, God's family. And, the, and there's two places in the Bible that talk about being adopted as children by God through faith in Christ. So that's what Paul is writing about. And nobody reading that, I think, except Richard Rohr, would think that it literally means we're all literally in Christ. And so it's kind of ironic to me because Richard Warris tends to put down what he thinks are people who believe, quote unquote, literal interpretations. And he's actually the one being very literal, but it's in a completely wrong way. Mm. You know, this is something nobody very would think. Interesting. <laughs> so that's yeah. just an, an example. Yeah, that's... that's just an example of what yeah. he does. He's he's very, you know, he's very good when he speaks. He's very persuasive and he's very good at how he presents his ideas. I, I don't know how many hours and hours and hours I've watched him talk. Mm -hmm. um, but if you have really investigated him, you know what he's saying and you know how he's making it so that it sounds like he's right. But nobody, nobody in the Christian church would agree with any of that. What, I, what I'm finding um, interesting about what you're saying is 
when you use the example of Paul and, and what he's saying in the text, it's interesting that it comes down to like delineating the difference the different definitions of interpretations. It's it's kind of you're saying Richard Raw's using this ter- interpretation and reading of in Christ, and you're saying Christianity, as you see it, sees that very differently. What do you think? What do you think draws? Because on on our show Ideas Digest, we've we've <clears throat> we're continuing to explore a lot of people of probably the millennial generation that have deconstructed from probably. Mm-hmm maybe your brand of Christianity, which is mm-hmm. more like the conservative. And, it, and it's a common trend going that way. And, and a lot of them are going and being very drawn to the Rob Bells and the Richard Rawls because they're mm-hmm. not becoming, a lot of them are not going hard atheist being like, I don't believe in anything. But the trend seems to be going, yeah, I definitely don't subscribe to maybe the penal atonement theory. I think there's something in Jesus. I think Rob Bell outlines this. And, and Richard Raw talk about it. What what do you think is drawing, I guess, either pushing the millennial generation out of traditional Christianity and what, what is drawing them to people like Rob Bell or Richard Raw? Well, I think I think it could be several factors. I think um, some of them may have had a very um, legalistic upbringing, perhaps. Maybe they're type of Christianity they were in or the church they were in was very legalistic and had a lot of rules or at least gave the impression there were a lot of rules or they didn't answer questions maybe that these people had. Um, and so they felt like, well, you know, you can't answer these questions or you can't explain this thing in the Bible that I don't understand. So um, I'm going to, you know, keep looking, or maybe this is inadequate, you know, because I'm not, I'm not make, making sense of this. Um, so I think those kind of things can drive people, um, into, you know, a to Richard Rohr, um, disillusionment, or it could be the opposite of legalism would be sort of a dead church where people go kind of out of habit and they, you know, they do everything. It's all kind of habit or it's tradition. It doesn't really mean anything. It's just, we need to go. We've always gone, you know, and so we have to all go to church and we're all going to do this and, 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 and take part in this, et cetera. And that's just a very kind of empty, of course, kind of belief system. And it, it's, it's, an empty system. I mean, nobody likes that (laughs) unless you can somehow, unless you want to rationalize it, you know, but younger people aren't going to do that. So they're going to be like, this is not real, anything really spiritual for me. I need something that's really spiritually, you know, sat really spiritually deep and, you know, I'm not finding it here. So I think that kind of thing also. And unfortunately, I think a lot of churches are like that. I, I think there's a lot of churches that are not really doing what they're supposed to be doing as churches and they're either legalistic or they're dead or they're very shallow shallow oriented what do you think when you're saying like a dead church like people just going through the motions no one's really passionate everyone's just kind of rocking up i guess the progressive uh christian or maybe the millennial that's left would say they might pinpoint the doctrines and go, listen, these didn't work. They didn't lead me to more love, inclusion, and acceptance. In fact, I was just more judgmental. I wasn't passionate about life and all these things. They might point to the doctrines and say, that's, that's why it's dead. What would you point to 
when you look at some of these churches that, that you might be talking about? What, what do you think may, leads people in a church to kind of go through the motions and just kind of be like, ah, it, you know, not passionate? Um, I think maybe because they forget what the central, the central person of Christianity is Jesus Christ. If you start making it about something else, um, if you start making it about traditions or making it about you need to do this in order to be a good Christian, or, you know, you should be doing that, or you shouldn't be doing that, you know, and it becomes like this, this um, performance kind of thing, um, or, uh, or maybe, uh, or maybe too judgmental, you know, you, you said that, and so you're not a good Christian, you know, instead of trying to lovingly point out to the person, maybe something they did wrong, like, let's, you know, let's talk about this and let's see where you are in your journey with Christ. They kind of, you know, just make the person feel bad. So I mm-hmm. think when it becomes like very performance oriented, you lose, you really lose the core of, of what the church is about, which is Jesus Christ, who is the founder and the head of the church. And if you mm-hmm. lose sight of that, you will go downhill very fast. And it takes work and effort to keep Christ as the focus. It's a constant, it's a constant job. It doesn't happen automatically. And it's, it's something that has to be constantly cultivated by the leaders in the church and, and also by the, you know, the congregation or the members have to be aware of this and participate. And if you don't, the church can go sideways in all kinds of directions you know, whether it's legalistic or dead or shallow um, or whatever it starts becoming or maybe false teachings. It may start going in a direction that seems spiritual, but it's accepting really kind of false, false spirituality. That's another direction. All of that can happen when you lose that that spoke of the wheel, which is Jesus Christ. And and like, you know how you know how you always hear from people Uh, marriage counselors, like you have to be working at your marriage. If you don't, your marriage will start, you know, kind of disintegrating if the people aren't really actively cultivating it and cultivating their relationship with each other. That's very true Mm -hmm. for for the church as far as Jesus Christ goes. It takes takes effort. How do you see, how do you see those millennials or whoever who might be leaving traditional Christianity or conservative Christianity and moving towards the progressive. How do you, how do you view them? Um, well, I, I'm, I'm a mother, so I'm, I feel very maternal towards them. (laughs) I feel, uh, you know, I feel, um, I feel for them. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't dislike them or anything like that. I feel for them. I, I feel sad. I feel, um, you know, I feel a sense of compassion for their plight, for maybe their lack of, maybe they weren't taught well, maybe they didn't really get good teaching in their church. And I don't want to always blame the church. Maybe they were in a good church and they just personally, for whatever reason, rejected it. Um, But, you know, I feel like they aren't really getting the message of Christianity. And so they've gone somewhere else to get what they think is a, is a, is a real Christian message or maybe a better Christian message. And it's going to be, you know, it's not going to be the real thing. And mm-hmm. so I just, I hate to see people being deceived. So 
my feeling towards them is one of kind of sadness and wanting, you know, this is what I do in part of my ministry when I write things or I'm doing interviews or talking or whatever it may be, is hoping that some of those people hear what I say and hear that there is a genuine Jesus Christ that maybe they didn't get to know or get to hear mm-hmm. about and don't give up on that just because of your experiences, you know, in whatever church you were in or maybe the family you were in, don't give up on that. You've, you've read enough of the Richard Raw Rob Bell and the books they cite. How do you think the progressive Christians or people leaving the church, how do you think they see you and your reading and understanding of the Bible? Well, um, see me personally or, or, um, maybe you as a person or the Christianity you represent even probably, um, I think they might assume, um, based on maybe some articles they see, you know, on my website or some Facebook posts, um, just initially they might assume I am uh, representing something that they have left and that I don't understand them, that maybe I am being too narrow in my thinking and I'm, I, maybe they even assume I've judged them or I think they're like horrible people because <laughs> they like Richard Rohr or something. Um, yeah. And I'm sure that, you know, that's what a lot of them would think. And I, I, that makes me sad too, because like I just said, I don't, I don't see them that way. And I, um, you know, I can push back if someone's arguing with me and I'm like, you know, no, how can you say Richard Rohr says that when he says this, you know, but, but that's because I want them to see the truth. And so I, I hope maybe if any of them are listening to this, that they understand, um, that what I say and I'm, I'm, what I'm doing is because I do care about them and I do Mm -hmm. want them to really know this true peace and love of Jesus Christ that they will not find with Richard Rohr. So, you know, I, I, this is a chance at least for me to say that, and for them to know I'm not disliking them or judging them or thinking they're they're crazy or dumb or whatever for going off in another direction. You know, I because I actually can understand it because look what I did. You know, I mm-hmm. I I basically left what I thought was Christianity and searched in these other areas that were even more foreign, I mean even more alien to Christianity, um, mm-hmm. for many, many, many years. So I can't, who am I to say to them, well, what in the world are you doing? (laughs) Marcia, thank you so much for taking so much time to chat to us. I really feel like, you know, you embodied the ideas digest process, you know, experimenting with different perspectives and, and answering my questions. Is there anything you would like to add or sum up in case you missed anything that you'd want to just put out there? Well, let's see. Um, yeah, I think we covered a really a lot of things here. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I would add that um, in my journey to Christ that I was not trying to change and that it was definitely, you know, God was definitely drawing me to Christ. And this is something Jesus says. He says, you know, no one can come to the the father except by me and God and God gives those to me. They I will not lose No one can snatch them out of my hand, he says. Mm -hmm. So there is something there where God has a power um, that he wants you to come to Christ. He he wants you to look at at his son 
and see who Jesus really is. And that's what he did in my life. And I want that to happen for others. Um, and so I guess my, my parting thought is don't close the door on that. And, you know, consider my story and where, where, what I, what I believe now and how that has given me the real meaning in my life and the real peace in my life. Marcia, thank you. Thank you so much. And as you're listening to this, whether you agree or disagree, I don't really care. It's, it's not really the point. Whether you agree or disagree, hopefully I've been able to unpack Marcia's story, where she comes from, how she comes to the conclusions she's come to, and how those work for her in her life. If you've enjoyed this episode or if you just made it to this point in the podcast, it's your obligation and moral duty to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. You can check us out on Instagram, connect with us there. Remember, number one, listen to the episode that triggers you the most. It's probably the one that, that will challenge you the most. Number two, ask a question. What questions did I miss? There were so many different directions we could have gone and there's only one of me. And so send me through the questions that you wish I had have asked. And number three, reach out to us. We love hearing from you in the DMs. Who should we talk to next? Link us different things. Uh, and other than that, I will catch you in the next episode.